Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Can you believe it's already October? Wasn't it June just a day or so ago? Anyway, it is. Is it officially fall yet? I'm not sure we're quite. It is official. Yeah. Well, Dave says it's official. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us on this 3rd of October. James Blend is producing here in Portland. Dave King Engineering. Pedro Bartez is producing and engineering in Seattle. Today, I'm looking forward to a conversation in our second hour with Coach Joe Kennedy. He was the subject of a Supreme Court case uh, that secured our freedom to exercise our religion, even if you happen to be on a football field. We'll Remind you of that story and hear from him. What's next? As you might recall, he has stepped away from coaching after the first game they won when he was back in the on the field after eight years of a legal battle. So anyway, we'll get into all of that later in today's program. And we'll also work our way through some of the day's headlines. Well, today was certainly a um, an historic day. Lawmakers voted to oust Speaker Kevin McCarthy from his leadership role. It's the first time in the history of the House of Representatives that the chamber voted to boot a member from that top job. Eight Republicans voted with every present Democrat to vacate the Speaker's chair. The final vote, 216 to 210, in favor of McCarthy's ouster. So in an effort to um, oust the Speaker... These eight went against all members of the Republican Party in the House and joined with Democrats, sort of doing the very thing they suggested that the former speaker had done. Anyway, Representative Matt Gates he introduced a measure against McCarthy known as the motion to vacate. That was on Monday night, accusing him of breaking promises he made to win the speaker's gavel in January. Now, perhaps that's uh, that's the case. Tensions flared during an hour of debate before the actual motion to vacate after 11 Republicans voted with every Democrat to advance the measure. McCarthy's uh, allies had taken up all of the microphones on the GOP side of the chamber, forcing Gates to make his case from the side where Democrats traditionally sit, trying to make a visual point. Chaos is Speaker McCarthy. Chaos is somebody who we cannot trust with their word, Gates said, as McCarthy looked down at his... Um, at his lap. At one point, an outraged McCarthy ally, Representative Garrett Graves, a Republican out of Louisiana, accused Gates and his uh, cohorts of sending fundraising efforts on their motion to vacate. He fumed while pointing to his phone using official actions to make money is disgusting. That was a quote. Chance of shame erupted on the House GOP side of the chamber. Gates responded when it comes to how those uh, raise money. I take no lecture on asking patriotic Americans to weigh in and contribute to this fight from those who would uh, grovel and bend the knee for the lobbyists and special interests who own our leadership. End quote. A Republican lawmaker shouted at Gates, you're no martyr. Well, Democrats signaled early on Tuesday that they would not be inclined to help McCarthy. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries said before the vote, Democrats are ready to find bipartisan common ground. Our extreme colleagues have shown no willingness to do the same. They must find a way to end the House Republican civil war, end quote. And by the way, there's something in the works to see if he could, in fact, become the speaker. It doesn't have to come from the majority party. But Hakeem Jeffries is vying for that spot. Well, in January, it took 15 rounds of voting until McCarthy was elected. 
He angered hardliners over the weekend when he passed a short-term spending bill known as a continuing resolution to keep the government open for 45 days in order to avert a government shutdown and give lawmakers more time to cobble together 12 individual spending bills. Well, 90 House Republicans voted against the continuing resolution on Saturday, arguing that it was a clean extension of the previous democratically held Congress policies. But the Speaker's previous attempts to put a continuing resolution on the table that would cut spending for its short duration were upended by several of those same conservatives who were opposed to any such measure on principle. Well, the frustration at the small number of rebels Uh, was palpable among House Republicans uh, this morning. This is a distraction from what we should be focusing on, which is the appropriations process. Main Street Caucus Vice Chair Stephanie Bryce, a Republican out of Oklahoma, said, This is all about Matt Gates. It's not about Kevin McCarthy. Matt Gates is using the American people as pawns in his narcissistic game of charades, end quote. That gives you sort of a glimpse in how likely it is they're going to come up with an alternative approve that alternative, and in the next 45 days come up with a budget. You might uh, think back to when Kevin McCarthy was elected Speaker. Uh, He previously served as House Minority Leader. He won the Speakership position with 216 votes. The Republican Party narrowly controlled the House with 220 to the Democrats' 212 Representative Patrick McHenry, a Republican from North Carolina, nominated him. And Representative uh, Pete Aguilar, a Democrat from California, nominated Representative Hakeem Jeffries out of New York in the 14th round of voting. Jeffries won 212 votes. Now, Republican Andy Big, Biggs of Arizona and Lauren Boebert of Colorado Uh, Eli Crane of Arizona, Matt Gates of Florida, Bob Good of Virginia, and Matt Rosendale of Montana voted present. Fifteen Republicans changed their votes in McCarthy's favor. Uh, That was on Friday in this lengthy process. I won't bother to mention uh, all of their names. Um, But uh, among them, uh, Representative Tom Emmer of Minnesota won the House Majority Whip position. Representative Elise Stefanek of New York was reelected to the House conference chair position in November and House Democrats nominated to Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York for the speaker of the House position in every round. That means 15 times. It was an historic moment then for the country. American voters delivered a mandate for conservative leadership in November, a mandate to put an end to business as usual in Washington. This is a quote, by the way. That demand is now being fulfilled by those members taking seriously their commitment to their constituents, Roberts said at the time. Well, in the face of extreme establishment rhetoric and media spin, conservatives fought for their constituents, had a robust debate over how to fix Congress, and now have a stronger voice to make meaningful change. Well, that was then. This is now. Um, it was added, there is much work to be done and Heritage looks forward to working with the 118th Congress to address the most pressing issues facing Americans today. It's time to get to work. Fast forward to today and another historic day in which the speaker is no more. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Coach Joe Kennedy. Yeah, that coach from Bremerton. We'll talk about uh, what happened and what happens next. He's joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. By the way, we've learned that uh, Speaker McCarthy is not planning to run again. He's made a statement 
probably right about now making that uh, making that point. Well, in other news, former President Donald Trump's lawyer, Alina Haba, joined um, uh, the team to represent the president. The New York uh, judge presiding over that organization, the Trump Organization trial, imposed a partial gag order preventing all parties from engaging in any verbal attacks against court staff after the president, the former president, criticized a member of the judge's office on social media. Of course, he criticized the judge rather severely um, in regular media, Judge Arthur Ngoran on Tuesday, uh, it was the afternoon, issued an order that he said applies to both the defense and New York Attorney General Letitia James team. The gag order only applies to verbal attacks on staff. Well, Ngoran said his order came after a defendant posted to a social media account a disparaging, untrue and personally identifying post about a member of my staff. Well, in Gorin, he added that personal attacks on members of my court staff are unacceptable, not appropriate, and warned they would not be tolerated. Well, without naming the former president, the judge was referring to a now-deleted Trump post on his Truth Social account about Ngoran's law clerk. Trump posted on Truth Social alleging that uh, she had a relationship with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. That post also contained a photo. Schumer's girlfriend, as he referred to her, is running this case against me. How disgraceful. This case should be dismissed immediately. Well, he deleted the post at the beginning of the lunch recess, perhaps being prompted to do so. The order came during the second day of the non-jury civil trial of of, uh, Trump, his family, and the Trump organization stemming from uh, James' lawsuit, alleging that he inflated his assets and committed fraud when building his business empire. The former president was present in the lower Manhattan courtroom for both Monday and Tuesday's events. Former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly confirmed several remarks his former boss, former President Trump, reportedly made during his time in the administration, including one where Trump referred to dead U.S. service members as suckers. In a statement to CNN, Kelly, the longest serving chief of staff in the Trump administration, confirmed to network anchor Jake Tapper a number of details published in a 2020 article by The Atlantic, including remarks made by Trump during an official visit to France in 2018. A person that thinks those who defend their country in uniform or are shot down or seriously wounded in combat or spend years being tortured as POWs are all suckers because there is nothing in it for them, Kelly told CNN in his lengthy statement about the former president. A person that did not want to be seen in the presence of military amputees because it doesn't look good for me, end quote. A person who demonstrated open contempt for a Gold Star family, for all Gold Star families, on TV during the 2016 campaign and rants that our most precious heroes who gave their lives in America's defense are losers and wouldn't visit their graves in France. Well, several senior staffers told The Atlantic at the time that the former president didn't want to visit the graves of the American soldiers buried uh, there in the cemetery in France, saying, why should I go to that cemetery? It's filled with losers, end quote. Well, the former president also referred to the 1800 U.S. Marines killed in World War II's Battle of um, Belleau Woods as suckers for getting killed. Now, this is according to John Kel- uh, Kelly and a couple of staff members. Kelly also criticized his former boss in a statement saying that Trump was not truthful in his political positions and is a person that has no idea what America stands for and has no idea what America is about. A scathing response, an interview on CNN. 
Hunter Biden pleaded not guilty to three firearms charges during his appearance in a federal court in Wilmington, Delaware, this morning. In mid-September, special counsel David Weiss indicted President Joe Biden's son, alleging that Hunter lied on a federal form while purchasing a gun five years ago. The four-page indictment filed in U.S. District Court in Delaware argues that Hunter knowingly made a false and fictitious written statement intended or likely to receive. A dealer in his uh, effort to acquire a Colt Cobra revolver in October of 2018. Well, the indictment, it accuses Hunter of certifying on a federal alcohol, tobacco and firearms form that he was not an unlawful user of or addicted to any stimulant, narcotic drug or any other controlled substance when, in fact, as he knew, that statement was false and fictitious. Biden openly acknowledged his struggles with addiction in his recent memoir, writing that he was smoking crack nearly every 15 minutes around the time he purchased the gun. I'm not sure how you you plead not guilty under those circumstances, but the indictment represented an about face for Weiss, who previously brokered a plea deal with Biden in late July that would have permitted the president's son to avoid jail time if he passed periodic drug tests and stayed out of legal trouble. Well, the agreement ultimately fell apart after District Court Judge Mary Ellen Noreka. She objected to the broad immunity Hunter would receive. It was rather unusual for any defendant under these circumstances from any future charges, including potential charges related to the foreign influence peddling scheme. House Republicans are currently investigating. And the United States Supreme Court has refused to hear the appeals of multiple pro-life activists who are facing heavy fines for releasing undercover videos showing Planned Parenthood employees discussing the harvesting of baby body parts for profit, which is unlawful. The pro-life activist group known as the Center for Medical Progress garnered national headlines. It was back in 2015 when it released a series of undercover videos that showed Planned Parenthood officials and other abortion providers discussing illegal activities such as altering the way an abortion procedure is performed to acquire a baby's organs, tissue and limbs intact. In, or, in an order uh, orders list released on Monday morning, the high court declined to hear the combined cases of Center for Medical Progress et al. versus National Abortion Federation and Steve Cooley et al. versus National Abortion Federation. Additionally, the Supreme Court declined to hear the combined cases of Troy Newman versus Planned Parenthood Federation at all, Sandra S. Merritt versus Planned Parenthood uh, Federation at all, and Albin Romberg versus Planned Parenthood Federation. You get the rest. Well, the refusal to hear the appeals allows earlier court rulings against the pro-life activists to stand, which could result in the activists being forced to pay millions of dollars in damages. A Liberty Council, which is helping to represent Merritt, released a statement on Monday warning that the refusal to hear the cases has far-reaching First Amendment consequences involving free speech and undercover journalism. The legal group then quoted from its petition to the Supreme Court in which they asked if the First Amendment's free speech clause protects news-gathering journalists who operate under an alias to document and expose what they, re- they reasonably believe to be unlawful conduct from being subjected to punitive liability for fraud. This case concerns whether and to what extent the press may raise the First Amendment as a defense against generally applicable tort laws when undercover journalists gather and publish truthful news of significant public importance. Well, since releasing the undercover videos, the CMP activists, they found themselves dealing with a wave of litigation from Planned Parenthood and NAF who have accused the pro-life group of selectively editing the videos and violating confidentiality agreements. However, 
CMP also publicly released the videos in their entirety, unedited, and uh, were reviews by the Christian Post at the time. So the charge was uh, salacious, or was false, I should say. Uh, and the information exposed illegal conduct. But Planned Parenthood has faced no backlash whatsoever. An elections watchdog group is suing Hawaii, claiming that the state breaks federal law in maintaining voter registration lists. Public Interest Legal Foundation filed the lawsuit alleging that Hawaii's chief election officer, Scott Nago, he violated Section 8 of the National Voter Registration Act of 1993 that requires states to regularly update voter registration rolls. The organization's lawsuit also alleges that Hawaii's state law restricting who may access voter rolls violates the federal law's provision on public disclosure. So we'll see what happens with the lawsuit and we will follow it as it uh, develops. Just a reminder, coming up in the second hour of today's program, a conversation with Coach Joe Kennedy. He's in a remote place in Louisiana. Our connection wasn't great. There was some crackling in the background, but it wasn't sufficient to uh, to end our conversation. And I wanted you to hear from him uh, as he has uh, won the Supreme Court battle that took eight years and um, has stepped away from being the coach. So that's coming up in our second hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we'll talk with Coach Joe Kennedy. But also coming up tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with uh, Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger. He's the author of More Than Things, a personalist ethics for a throwaway culture. He's a, a professor at Multnomah University and a seminary, and we're going to talk with him about his latest book that's coming up on tomorrow's program. Well, student loan deferment has uh, come to an end. The U.S. Supreme Court in late June overturned the president's executive uh, order or bribe. As of Sunday, October 1st, those who had not been paying their student loans all along need to resume paying their debt. Uh, many took advantage of the COVID-era deferment that uh, that should have ended two and a half years ago when people were able to go back to work. But the freeze on student loan payments continued, and the president led people further down the path of financial burden by promising to forgive up to $20,000 in student loan debt for millions of borrowers. He even, um, he and uh, then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi knew that he didn't have the executive power to forgive that debt. They stated just that. On previous occasions, but the president tried to do it anyway. Uh, not having to pay student loans during the pandemic acted as a, a, a carrot in front of voters who saw loan forgiveness as a way out of the financial hole they were in. Team Biden used those borrowers' plight to apply pressure on the rest of the government to allow his overreach to stand. Well, borrowers got used to not having to account for that student loan deficit in their monthly budgets. They could afford more things. They could have uh, taken on uh, other debt. Uh, that they are now um, unable to afford, adding to the hurt of that renewed financial burden is a terrible economy, bad inflation, rising interest rates. And one does feel sad about the situation, but at the same time, um, well, it's the decision that had been made early on. Well, the twofold bet was that Biden would be able to get away with an unconstitutional act and that the rest of America would be okay with using their tax dollars to cover the cost. Well, politically, the blame is thrown at the Republicans' feet, but as Politico reported, this reversal of student loan forgiveness has been part of the Democrat calculus for a while. As much as political tries to paint it as a benevolence in terms of programs to help with repayments, the important political point is buried in the happy talk. 
Realistically, it's been a lost revenue stream for the government since the loan repayment stopped. However, the trade-off of that uh, renewed revenue stream will mean a more bearish economy since borrowers are going to have to slow spending on goods and services as a result. Well, millions of people were misled into going along with the um, student loan forgiveness plan, the scheme. Um, But it's only a, a symptom and it's not the actual source of the problem. Emmy Griffin, uh, in analyzing all of this, points out that the advocates for student loan forgiveness, though wrong on just about every point, are right about a college education being too expensive for the average American. Why do colleges and universities charge so much for higher education? Nate Jackson has written about this at length, but between government subsidies, too much unnecessary staff, and imprudent spending... The price of a college education is unsustainable. Many people who aren't of the elite class are going to choose other options than college. A part of the impetus that spurred on the whole student loan forgiveness scheme came from the ideologically driven premise that college debt hurt students of color more than any other students. However, this premise is part of the problem. Racism is not to blame for college debt. Rather, it's the pushing of the need for college diversity on students who can't achieve academically and yet have incurred college debt. Well, the Daily Wire's uh, Matt Walsh recently did an interview with Heather McDonald, academic and author of When Race Trumps Merit. McDonald addresses the inherent problems with identity politics in colleges. When merit is replaced, she writes, by an um, oppressive um, hierarchy, people who aren't ready or aren't able to handle the academic rigor of becoming a doctor or engineer are then funneled into programs that are a waste of their time and and their money, such as gender or racial studies, which are not exactly financially responsible paths for future careers or families. Even overpaid DEI professors are culled once their positions fall out of favor. Democrats have used COVID, systematic racism, and the economy as an excuse to lure borrowers into a false sense of financial security. They'll try to spin it as a Republican's fault, but the reality is that Democrats placed power, ideology, and potential votes over financial well-being of constituents. And it won't end until feckless spenders are booted out of office and the American public becomes financially literate. And that perhaps is the uh, strongest uh, push that we need to make, that Americans are financially literate and perhaps even opt out of the college racket or insist upon it becoming financially feasible for the average American to attend and not be a slave to for decades following. Well, the civil trial against former President Donald Trump, his family and his business empire continued today with more witness testimony as New York Attorney General Letitia James seeks to make her case that the Trump organization overvalued its assets. The president attended the first and second day of the uh, the hearing. The court is expected to reconvene with James' office tying testimony from its first witness, uh, Donald Bender, of accounting firm Mazers USA LLP to its overall case. His testimony focused on financial records dating back to 2011. The uh, judge who is presiding over the non-jury civil trial said the uh, questioning was a waste of time unless James' office could tie it back to something within the statute of limitations, something James' office promised to do today. Well, after the first impeachment inquiry hearing launched by House Republicans against the current president, some legal experts are split on whether the accusations leveled against the president warrant an impeachment. Of course, an inquiry is uh, 
designed to determine that very fact. But they all said the evidence needs to be investigated. Following the marathon hearing on Thursday last that lasted several hours, House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer said that GOP lawmakers successfully outlined how the Biden family brought in over $15 million in their foreign influence peddling, over $24 million if you account for their associates' earnings from the schemes by leveraging access to then-Vice President Joe Biden. We have established, and I'm quoting, in the first phase of this investigation, where this money came from, Ukraine, Romania, Russia, Kazakhstan, China. It didn't come from selling anything legitimate. It largely went unreported to the IRS. It was funneled through shell companies and third parties to hide the Biden's fingerprints, end quote. This is uh, Comer speaking. Well, House Republicans are still making their case in the impeachment inquiry process, But legal experts who spoke on the subject are split on whether the evidence presented so far meets the threshold of an impeachment offense. And, of course, the investigation continues. Well, the Fresno County, California officials are criticizing Governor Gavin Newsom after he signed multiple gun control bills into law in recent days. Fresno County Sheriff John Zanoni and District Attorney Lisa Smitkamp, they spoke out against Newsom after he signed Senate Bill 2 into law this week, a law which uh, makes it harder for California residents to obtain their concealed carry permits. Both officials argue, uh, officials rather argue that the law doesn't penalize those who commit the majority of gun crimes, those who have illegally obtained firearms. The House Ways and Means Committee released a document uh, on Wednesday last showing an IRS agent relying on um, or rather relaying an inquiry from a CNN producer who claimed to have an email where Hunter Biden said that all of this stuff would go away once his father was elected president. Well, to date, the alleged email has never become public. Documents show Hunter Biden and his uh, business associates had access to the White House and Joe Biden's advisors. Biden business associates were instructed to not mention Joe being involved in official trips to Ukraine line up with U.S. government actions and Hunter Biden's financial bottom line, the Wednesday press release states. And after the IRS began investigating these crimes, Hunter apparently expected all of this stuff to go away when his dad became president. Didn't work out just quite that way. Well, Friday last marked the sixth month since White, uh, since Wall Street journalist and reporter Evan Gerskovich was detained by Russia and accused of espionage, making him the first American journalist held by the Kremlin on such charges since the Cold War. The Wall Street Journal launched a social media campaign to raise awareness of what the U.S. government has officially designated a wrongful detainment to coincide with the difficult milestone. Journalists and supporters are encouraged to post images of I stand with Evan hashtag and uh, pins and shirts with a message are expected to be plentiful. The Guardian's um, uh, reporter, one of the many friends of Gerskovich, made in his uh, journalism career, told Fox News Digital they've been in weekly contact by letters and his spirits remain strong despite his grueling ordeal. A Washington, D.C. landlord who claimed a local uh, to a local news station that he wasn't or rather hasn't been paid rent in three years was told that he would have to wait, well, at least another four months to get a uh, trial on evicting his tenants. John Jones owns a single two-bedroom unit in southeast D.C. News 4 I-Team reported the I-Team first met Jones when he complained that he was missing $14,000 from a COVID-era rent relief program. City documents showed the check was sent in 2021 to the tenants and cashed, but they never sent the money to the landlord. 
He says they haven't paid rent for a few months before or since. He claims they now owe $46,800, but he'll just have to wait, even though fraud was clearly perpetrated. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Coach Joe Kennedy. It took eight years and a U.S. Supreme Court decision to grant him the freedom that the Constitution seems to guarantee to take a knee following a football game at the Bremerton High School. We'll tell you about that journey, about his new book, And what's next? Coach Joe Kennedy will join us in the five o'clock hour. Also tomorrow on the program, uh, Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger, professor uh, from Multnomah University. Um, More than things, a personalist ethic for a throwaway culture. That's coming up in the first hour of the program tomorrow. Well, the attorney for one of the 19 defendants indicted alongside former President uh, Trump says his client, Scott Hall, can now get on with his life. Hall and his attorney, Jeff Weiner. They've reached a plea deal with the uh, Fulton County District Attorney's Office in Georgia. The grand jury indicted Hall in August on charges stemming from alleged election interference in the state's 2020 presidential election. He spoke exclusively on Fox News after reaching the plea agreement on Friday, said the issue for Hall was not the facts of the case, but his intent. I am convinced that he had no criminal intent, the attorney said. I'm absolutely certain that he is a good man. Hall, a bail bondsman, traveled to Georgia's rural Coffee County to investigate allegations of election fraud following President Biden's narrow victory in Georgia in 2020. Well, according to um, Weiner, Hall believed a lot of the things that Donald Trump and others in his camp were saying, and so he got involved to find out for himself what was going on. My client was a very curious, patriotic American, he said. He regrets that he got involved with all of that. Under the plea deal, he'll serve five years of probation, pay $5,000 in fines, and perform 200 hours of community service. Israeli Ambassador to the United Nations, Gilad Erdan, had pointed remarks for the world body after being detained by its security personnel, telling Fox News Digital that anti-Semitism is very prevalent within the halls of the U.N., The U.N. is a building, and it's uh, fair to say that in this building, anti-Semitism, sadly, is very prevalent. He said during that interview, there are many anti-Semitic countries like Iran who want to annihilate the one and only Jewish state. And we don't hear any condemnation against Iran for saying it. Erdogan's uh, comments came uh, after U.N. security personnel detained the Israeli ambassador after he left the General Assembly Hall to protest a speech by Iranian President Ibrahim Raisa. Uh, during his protest of the speech, Erdogan, he held up a picture of Masha Amini, the Iranian woman who sparked protests across the country last year after she was killed while in custody of police for not wearing the proper head covering in public with a caption of Erdogan's photo reading, Iranian women deserve freedom now. He expressed disgust with the U.N.'s red carpet treatment of the Iranian president, noting that uh, Raisa is responsible for the murder of thousands of his own people. He said he felt that I had to do something, so he protested peacefully and held up the picture of Masha Amini, and suddenly I was uh, roughly manhandled by the U.N. security. He said that his detention was a small price to pay for the protest, arguing that he wanted to convey an important message that the people of Israel stand in solidarity with the people of Iran against this ruthless regime. The upcoming Barney movie. Oh yes, there's going to be a Barney movie. I don't know about you, but I could never stand Barney. 
Anyway, that's a whole nother subject for a whole nother day. But it's a play for adults based on the popular 90s era show for preschool age children featuring an anthropomorphic purple and green dinosaur. It won't be aimed at children, according to Mattel. Instead, the movie will be marked toward adults and will be an A24 type, a surrealistic movie, Mattel Films executive. That's Kevin McKean says, speaking to The New Yorker on the heels of the studio's Barbie blockbuster success. We're leaning into the millennial angst of the uh, property rather than fine tuning this for kids. It's really a play for adults. Now, Barney is a big stuffed purple dinosaur with the little hands and the big face. And it's a movie for adults, he said. Not that it's R-rated, but it'll focus on some of the trials and tribulations of being 30-something. I mean, I guess Barney's older now. Growing up with Barney, just the level of disenchantment within the generation. Barney was a ubiquitous figure in many of our childhoods. Then he disappeared into the shadows, left misunderstood, he says. When the movie was announced, uh, we're excited to explore this compelling modern-day hero and see if his message of, I love you, you love me can stand the test of time. We're talking about Barney. It was a preschool show. Now it's being reproduced for adults. In an interview with Variety, Brenner said that Barney movie, the movie, would be more adult and have adult themes and sort of be a little bit off-kilter. Well, the whole idea seems a little bit off-kilter to me, but of course that's just me. Exploring themes like identity and finding who you love and who feels alienated and what does it all mean. And apparently 30-something grown-ups need a plush, stuffed dinosaur to help them find the answers. Mattel Films is also developing projects based on franchise such as Polly Pocket, <laughs> Thomas and Friends, American Girl, and Hot Wheels. But as 2023 nears its end, reports indicate Hollywood is unlikely to release a full-feature G-rated movie this year. In February, Mattel announced it was relaunching the entire Barney franchise, which will span television, film, and YouTube content, as well as music and a full range of kids' products, including toys, books, clothing, and more. So I guess there's a kids' version, and then there's a 30-something version of Barney. Barney will be relaunched as a brand new animated series in addition to all of this in 2024. When I was a child, I spake as a child, and I, then I became a man and I put away childish. Hmm. Well, the criminal trial of FTX founder and ex-CEO Barney. Okay, you're a grown man. I'm looking at my producer on the other side of the glass. You're a grown man. You probably are in this generation. Would you be interested in seeing Barney... The oversized purple dinosaur with the little hands and the big strange face were the would you be interested in seeing that movie focusing on on subjects that are that relate to a man of your age, the mature themes that you now face as a mature individual? No, he's nodding his head. No, that's creepy. I thought he was creepy then. Wow. Okay, moving on. I'll try to get that whole image out of my head. The criminal trial of FTX founder and ex-CEO Sam Bankman-Fried got underway today in a case that will determine his fate as he faces seven federal charges of fraud and conspiracy in connection with the collapse of his crypto empire. And here's what to know as the trial gets underway. Now, FTX went from 
being the second largest crypto exchange in the world, valued at an estimated $32 billion, to entering Chapter 11 bankruptcy in November of last year, along with sister hedge fund Alameda Research and other related entities after it was hit with a flood of withdrawals following reports that the exchange had merged assets with Alameda. Now, customers lost billions as a result of the collapse, and Bankman Freed, he resigned as CEO. He was replaced by John Ray III, who is best known for handling the bankruptcy of Enron and is now tasked with clawing back as many assets as possible for FTX's creditors. Well, Bankman Freed was first arrested in the Bahamas, where FTX International was based, before being extradited to the United States in December. Federal prosecutors in Manhattan, they've accused Bankman Freed of mishandling investors and lenders and stealing billions of dollars in customers' funds to buy real estate, make political contributions, and make up uh, for losses at Alameda. And I think he thought those political contributions would somehow protect him from the scrutiny he now faces. And finally, the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded to Massachusetts native Dr. Drew Weissman and Caitlin Carrico on Monday for discoveries that enable the development of an effective mRNA vaccine against COVID-19. Weissman is 64, grew up in Lexington and graduated from Brandeis University in 1981. He graduated from Boston University in 87 with an MD and PhD in immunology and microbiology. He's currently a professor in vaccine research at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Carrico is 68, a professor at um, Sagan's University in Hungary and an adjunct professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Weissman performed his prize-winning research together with Carrico in Pennsylvania, and they have received no, or will receive Nobel Prizes. All right, we've got news coming up at the top of the hour and then a conversation with Coach Joe Kennedy. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, after a years long battle involving prayer, personal expression, and the Constitution that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, Coach Joe Kennedy, I feel like I know him. I feel like we're, we're kindred spirits. He resigned from Bremerton High School. Well, now Coach Kennedy is sharing how God transformed his life and gave him the courage to take a knee while taking a stand for his beliefs in his debut book, Average Joe, the Coach Joe Kennedy story, with revelations about the case that will keep readers and, I hope today, listeners on the edge of their seats. Well, Coach Joe Kennedy, a 20-year Marine veteran, was an assistant coach for Bremerton High School, the varsity football team. Before he even coached his first game, the Marine-turned-football coach made a commitment to God that he would give thanks at the conclusion of every game. Well, that was met with disapproval from his school district, and it turned into a lengthy court battle. Well, the Supreme Court in June of 2022 ruled in favor of Coach Kennedy and the First Amendment. We're going to uh, talk with him about that and just want to um, welcome our friend. <laughs> we feel like our friend, Coach Joe Kennedy. I know you're you're speaking to us from Louisiana. Our line is a little bit um, a little bit crackly, but we desperately want to hear what you have to say. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for being courageous enough to do what most people would have chosen not to do, and that is to stand up for what is right, even what the, even the, though it took you years to uh, bring it to fruition and a U.S. Supreme Court decision. So thank you, first of all. Oh, absolutely. It was, I, it was tough, but it was absolutely worth every minute of it. 
Now, as I um, mentioned, you are a Marine. You're a football coach. Give us a little bit of your backstory and how you got into coaching. Yeah, well, I was one of those bad kids that needed something to do with his life. I needed discipline. I needed something because I was getting kicked out of every school and just in trouble every step of the way. So I, I went into the Marines so I can get, um, you know, some discipline and find some focus in my life. And I, I figured out that that was, you know, my calling at the time. So defending the Constitution was just my life's work. And it's something that I was really proud of. After I retired, I, that's when I actually um, started my relationship with the Lord. And when I got married to my wife, she took me to church and I was failing pretty fast and uh, at being a uh, husband and a, a father. So I gave myself to God and I never looked back. And next thing I know, I was offered a job coaching and just by a fluke because I never played football. I, I don't know a lot about football. But they offered me a job, and uh, I, I fought it tooth and nail. And finally, uh, I, I gave in, and the rest was history after that. Yeah, the rest certainly is history, <laughs> history-making, and I'm certain you hadn't anticipated <laughs> that when you first started uh, coaching. You are a former atheist, uh, which I think is an important thing to, to emphasize, and I think an encouragement to every mom who's listening, who's praying for a son or daughter that they can't imagine would ever come to faith. But as a former atheist, why was praying uh, specifically at the end of these games, why was that in so important to you? You didn't do it uh, to invite players or others, but you were demonstrating uh, gratitude uh, solely um, out of your heart's desire to to thank the Lord. Why was it important to you? Yeah, well, the way that started uh, when I when I first started coaching that weekend when they offered me the job, I was uh, I was discussing it with my family, and in the middle of the night, they started playing Face in the Giants, and just like in the movie, I was like, man, it just dropped me to my knees, and I said, I'm gonna give the glory to God after every game, win or lose, and that's what way everything just started, and that's the way I was doing it. And then when the school said to that I had to stop praying with the kids, I, I obliged. I, I said, well, that's unfortunate, but it's your school, your rules, but I'm going to continue on with my practice. That was my covenant with, with God. And when they told me I could no longer do that, I had to choose between their direction or my faith. And as as a Christian, I was very conflicted. I didn't know which way to go on mm-hmm. that, you know, because the Bible always tells you about love and everything. And I'm like, well, I'm not that kind of Christian. I'm one of those warrior guys. I've been fighting my whole entire life. And it was the Marine in me that fought for the Constitution. And I've had brothers and sisters that died defending the Constitution. And that meant the world to me. And I, I wasn't about to let it happen on my watch where they were taking the rights away from Americans, and especially after I fought for them so dearly for 20 years. Did you imagine when you first made the decision, I'm, I'm going to continue with my commitment, did you imagine that it would be challenged and ultimately take you all the way through the court system and to the United States Supreme Court? Oh, yeah, I, I don't think anybody could possibly mm-hmm. think that that would be anything besides God's work. Because, I mean, here it is, a high school football coach taking a 30-second knee after a football game. That's nothing new. That's been going on from the beginning of time with football. There's always been prayer after a game or in the locker room. So this wasn't something new. So it was – who would ever imagine that something like that would go to the Supreme Court and make national news yeah. and change the trajectory of – 
of the the Constitution and, and the United States, and especially with uh, the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion. Now, you mentioned that you had made the commitment that at the close of the game, win or lose, you're going to take a knee and just thank the Lord. It was just going to last for a few seconds. Were you joined by other uh, players and adults by your invitation, or did they just see you and decide they wanted to join you in taking the knee as well? How did that happen? Yeah, you nailed it on on the second part of that. So I was out there just taking a knee, thanking God, because i got to be part of this awesome experience with these young men who fight so hard out there in the football field, and for me being just part of it. About six months into the season, I had uh, a bunch of the, my teammates, uh, my kids, ask me, Coach, what are you doing out there after the game? And I'm, it was just simple. I just said, hey, I'm thanking God for what you guys did uh, out there on the football field. And they wanted to know if they could join. And, of course, I said, well, yeah, this is uh, your team. This is your school. This is, this is America. You can do whatever you want to do. And so they started joining us. And that kind of went on for – Years, depending now, you know, kids, if, if you lose by 60 points, you, you don't want to give thanks. And, and the flip side, also, if you win by 60 points, you can imagine the kids lose their mind and want to just celebrate. So sometimes they were there, sometimes they weren't. But as the years went on, more and more kids came out. And then they, um, towards uh, probably the fifth or sixth season, they asked if my, a couple of my team captains asked if they could invite the other team. And again, I was like, hey, this is your team and this is America. You can do whatever you want. So the other team started joining us. And then the last year, my eighth football season of coaching, that's when we had everybody in the entire league, which was awesome, come out there and join us for prayer. And that apparently was just too much for, for observers yeah. who didn't like the idea. Yeah. Well, if you can imagine, this actually came from a compliment. Somebody saw what we were doing out there in the football field and called the principal and gave them a compliment that what your football program is doing is awesome. So all of this stemmed from a compliment. Huh. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Coach Joe Kennedy. He was the subject of a Supreme Court case that ultimately secured for all of us Uh, What the Constitution says we already are entitled to, and that's the freedom of religion, even if we are on a football field coaching a team. We'll continue our conversation in a moment, so stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and talking with uh, Coach Joe Kennedy. He was the subject of a Supreme Court case that many of us are familiar with, and he's also the author of a forthcoming book. It'll be due uh, out later this month. Average Joe, the Coach Joe Kennedy story. The book is published by Salem Books. And again, the 24th of October, it will be made available uh, for purchase. More on that coming up. How many years uh, did you have to wait ultimately for a decision from the Supreme Court as the uh, the question worked its way through the lower courts? Yeah, it, it took nine football seasons, so eight full years it took. And we heard no seven different times from all the different courts. Now, it would have been easy to say, eh, I heard no, just, you know, move on. Why did you persist? Well, it, it, it probably stems from the very beginning when, when my team asked me, they were like, Coach, can't you just give in? Because I kept them, you know, abreast on everything that was going on. I didn't want to hide anything. So in one of our team meetings, I let them know what was happening and that it might come to me being suspended. And my team captain looked at me and said, Coach, can't you just give in and do what, what they say? And I knew at that moment, well, yes, I could absolutely do that. 
but what kind of hypocrite would I have been? Mm. I wouldn't have been able to be a coach for these guys. I would have been, I couldn't be a good husband. I couldn't be a good father because I would have been the biggest hypocrite just giving in. I ask these kids to do everything and I don't care how tough it is, you know, fight every single inch until there's nothing left on the clock. Could you imagine if I just gave up because it became inconvenient or it's going to cause me, you know, some pain and suffering? Heck no, there was no way I could do that. And as a Marine, we just don't quit either. Yeah, that was a teachable moment, uh, certainly for your students who are looking on and have been looking on for quite uh, quite some time. Well, on June 27th, 2022, you won that Supreme Court case. Can you walk us through that day? How did you find out and what was your reaction? Yeah, well, you know that the uh, Dobbs case, uh, the Roe versus Wade, was overturned a week prior to that. So we had no idea when ours was coming mm-hmm. out. If we expected that to be the last one of the year. And it was the next week I flew up to Plano, Texas, where my um, where my uh, lawyers are with First Liberty Institute. And we sat around a big conference table, everybody refreshing their computers every second, because at 9 o'clock, they release, start releasing the cases, and ours was the first one that popped up. And I just, I was like, well, what does it say? What does it say? And everybody started shushing me because <laughs> they were trying to read. <laughs> and I was like, come on, tell me. And they were like, you won, 6-3, now let us read. And so finally they finished reading that we, we won, and we all kind of stood up, gave a high five, and then it was a mad sprint to tell the world. And we did, I think, 87 interviews in three days oh, after that. Oh, my goodness. That. 87 interviews. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> for people who've never not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> for for anybody who's never been interviewed, 80 that is just that's astronomical. I can't imagine it. Well, what does winning this case mean for the future of America and religious freedom from your perspective? You know, I I really didn't. That was my my problem. I really worried about what it meant if I ended up losing because Mm -hmm. lower courts ruled that if anybody who gave any kind of um, demonstration of faith, you know, taking a knee, bowing a head and and, or wearing a cross, you can imagine any any display of that. That that includes Muslims, uh, uh, Jews wearing the yarmulke. I mean, this this affected all people that work for the government. And the lower court ruled that any demonstration could get you fired for it, and it was held up in court. So I was more worried about, you know, what the ramifications of losing. I thought the win would just put me back on the football field and be able to pray after a game. I had no idea it was going to overturn um, the Lemon case that's been standing mm-hmm. for over 50 years, which has hindered at least like 7,000 cases um, over the past 50 years that have been held up because of this lemon uh, case and they overturn it. So this means all Americans are free to worship as they see fit at any job. And it brought God right back into the school and onto the football field. I was so excited when I heard that not only you won the case, but that you had been reinstated as an assistant coach at, at Bremerton. And I, it's all I could do to keep from hopping in my car and driving there <laughs> to attend the game just to see you. Um, you did have an opportunity to resume coaching and to take a knee at the, uh, at the appropriate time in the game. But then you announced that you would be resigning. Can you explain all of that? Because I think for many of us, we were so thrilled and wondered, okay, why? <laughs> yeah, well, the only thing that my wife and I and everybody's been waiting for, like you said, is waiting for that moment when I was allowed to get back. I never thought past that. 
I, I bought a one-way ticket to Seattle so I could stay for the entire football season. And at, I mean, we were just just trying to make it through that finish line, and we knew that that was the finish line. We never thought of what what are the next steps. And my wife and I, we prayed about it. We thought about it. So I was there for the whole fall. I was there for the first game. And after that evening, we, we started talking, well, what's next for us? I mean, how long is this going to last? Is, or is it just one season? Then we got some news about my father-in-law down in Pensacola, Florida. He's got a bunch of heart problems and a whole bunch of medical problems. And it was like God really just told us this would be a good time. You just won the game, and what it, you should have come up for the game. It was incredible. It, and right after that, so I Monday I, I went to practice, Tuesday I went to practice, and then Wednesday morning I just woke up and said, I, I think I'm done. And we drafted a letter and sent it into the school. So we didn't even tell my lawyers or anybody about it. We just kind of went out on faith with what we felt God was directing us. Well, and again, I admire your faithfulness to listen and then to respond. It would have been easy to say to yourself, I can't leave now after all that's happened, after these eight years, I can't leave now. I need to stay at least long enough to establish myself and then think about the Lord said it's time to move on. And that's precisely what you did. So I have so much respect for you in making that decision, because I'm sure there are a lot of people who raised an eyebrow thinking, hey, Coach Kennedy is back. Well, you're precisely where you're supposed to be, and that's in the center of God's will. And that's that's where you were when this whole thing began. That's where you are now. And uh, that's where all of us need to be. Um, so Amen. congratulations on just listening and obeying. We We all find that challenging at times. Was it challenging for you? Oh, yeah. never-ending marathon. I wanted to quit just about every single day, what it did to my family, to my wife, mm. my kids, and everybody around us. Even our community was so affected by this. And the, the great thing about it is that we had millions of Americans that were praying. And I really believe that that's what changed the outcome of this. Because when everybody prays, it's amazing what God could do. He listened to the prayers of the American people. If we turn ourselves to God, then great things happen. And that's exactly what God did. He turned this all around and made it such a awesome, awesome experience for, for all Americans to witness. So you mentioned you have a father-in-law who is not physically well. What's next for you? That is a million-dollar question, and I've been asking God about that every single day. We thought about going into ministry. We talked about, uh, you know, actually just getting regular jobs again because we were both employed um, from the government, my wife and I, before all this started happening. And so we we haven't really discussed of really what's next. We're listening to where God's going to call us. Is he calling us to ministry? Is he calling us to keep fighting for the Constitution? Whatever it is, I'm, I'm just going to listen and I'm going to go where God directs me because I know I would mess it up. <laughs> well, you've already demonstrated that you have your ear poised to hear the Lord's leading and that you're willing to follow. So we'll be praying, uh, praying the same. Now, I mentioned your book. It's coming out later this month. Uh, Average Joe, uh, tell us uh, where our listeners can find it when that release actually happens on the 24th, I believe. Yes, it's released on the 24th, but it's available right now on pre-sale. You could go on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, just about any place that sells a book. Now you can look that up, um, Average Joe. 
and the Coach Kennedy story. And and by it, I can't wait till it comes out because I'm I'm really nervous about what people are going to think. Hopefully, it will inspire some people. I really hope that the naysayers, you know, because there's always a few people that are always against you. I hope they read this and they understand and make a more informed decision on it. Was Kennedy right or wrong in what he did? It tells my whole entire story of my family and my wife and and our whole entire life and journey. So hopefully it'll inspire if I could do this and God can use change the nation using a guy like me. Imagine what he could do with people like you guys. Yeah, Amen. Hey, Coach Joe, thank you so much for your courage and thank you for talking with us today. Thank you. Be blessed. We love you guys. You too. Bye-bye. Again, Coach Joe Kennedy, his book is uh, going to be released on the 24th of October. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. If you're in Seattle, have a great night. want to thank Pedro Bartes for producing and engineering. In Portland, we're going to continue, so stick around. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only segment of the Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to take a look at some of the news. Representative Jamal Bowman, a name you probably would not have known had he not, well, pulled the fire alarm, he keeps digging himself a deeper hole. Well, the representative has tried and largely failed to explain or justify his decision to pull a fire alarm in a Capitol office building as Congress rushed to avert a federal government shutdown. Well, now he's uh, desperation Uh, has escalated. He wants to put an end to criticism and push back on punishment for his conduct from House Republicans. It's taken a predictable but pathetic turn. Bowman's office released a document titled Messaging Guidance, supporting Congressman Jamal Bowden after, uh, rather, Bowman, after uh, accidental fire alarm aimed at getting his fellow Capitol Hill Democrats behind him to defend what has become a clearly indefensible act. Scrambling to take the heat off of himself, his office suggested that Democrats in Congress asked about the situation, chose from a list of suggested talking points to back up their colleague under fire, ranging from the literally unbelievable to the utterly absurd. I believe Congressman Bowman When he says this was an accident, Republicans need to instead focus their energy on the Nazi members in their party before anything else. They kind of settled on that one. Of course, people didn't take too kindly to the use of Nazi. And Bowman uh, issued another response. Spencer Brown points out that Bowman's response uh, with another incompetent explanation in what has become an unmitigated disaster of, uh, of a week for him and his office. But of course, The attention of most of the country has been averted, given what took place earlier today among Republicans. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre claimed that this week um, that attempts by House Republicans to get more funding to secure the southern border in exchange from uh, from them approving funding Ukraine was a political stunt. A reporter asked the um, White House uh, secretary during the White House a press conference on Monday about House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, saying that he wants any additional funds to Ukraine tied to congressional actions on border security. He claimed that President Joe Biden was delivering record funding for Border Patrol and then demonized what she said were extreme House Republicans. KJP, that's how they're referring to her now, Corrine Jean-Pierre, calls House Republicans wanting funding to secure the southern border a political stunt. Meanwhile, the Pentagon has more than $5 billion remaining in its coffers to provide weaponry and other security assistance to Ukraine after Congress passed a measure to keep the government open that didn't include more funding for the war effort. 
according to Pentagon officials. That is roughly the amount of weaponry the U.S. has spent to you, uh, sent rather to Ukraine from the U.S. stockpiles since the beginning of March, or about 11 percent of the total $43.9 billion in security assistance the U.S. has sent since Russia in February uh, facilitated the invasion. Well, the uh, uh, the ruckus over funding for Ukraine came at a critical moment in the war as Kiev's army chips away at entrenched Russian positions in the south of the country as part of the counteroffensive to advance efforts to dislodge occupying forces. Meanwhile, young French citizens believe in restricting airplane travel to four flights in a person's lifetime. There are entire countries that rely on tourism to support their economy, no matter France, by the way, is one of them. A new poll showed that a shocking number of French citizens support banning people from flying more than four times in their lives due to climate change. A poll from research, um, the firm Consumer Science and Analytics Institute, found that 41 percent of citizens there would support such a limit. That number rose to 59 percent support among 18 to 24 year olds. The suggested limit proposed by engineer Jean-Marc something French would apply to air travel for business and pleasure. So even your business travel would be restricted four times in your lifetime. Well, the poll surveyed 1,110 French residents, a very small pool, over the age of 18. It found that support for air travel restrictions was far higher among younger age groups. While a majority opposed the four-flight lifetime maximum, 64% of the respondents said they would be willing to limit their air travel in the near or medium term to combat uh, climate change. Climate activists across the globe have pushed for wide-ranging restrictions aimed at reducing carbon emissions. Of course, they would be exempt because they're so important in the work they do. They need to get hither and yon to carry it out. In the U.S., President Biden's administration has issued its own restrictions on gas-powered furnaces. It's only the latest move targeting home appliances. Well, the Supreme Court of the United States denied a 14th Amendment Trump disqualification effort. Well, on Monday, the Supreme Court rejected a bid raised by John Castro. He's a Republican presidential candidate to get Donald Trump disqualified from office based on the 14th Amendment. Well, Castro contends that according to the 14th Amendment's provision forbidding anyone who engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the U.S. from holding office, Trump should be disqualified due to the January 6th riot uh, at the Capitol. Well, Castro's uh, he lost his case in the lower court though he has uh, two others pending in court in New Hampshire and Arizona. Um, Anyway, the theory does not hold up to constitutional scrutiny. A Democrat congressman was robbed at gunpoint in Washington, D.C. A Texas Democrat representative, Henry uh, Sellier, was carjacked at gunpoint by three individuals in D.C. on Monday night. The incident happened outside of his apartment building, where three men wearing black clothing held a gun to his head and took his cell phone and his Honda CHR. Police were able to apprehend the suspects and return the car. The incident is now the second criminal attack against a member of Congress in D.C. this year alone. It serves to highlight the growing crime problem in the uh, in the city and others across the country. Well, thanks to Joe Biden's open border malfeasance, cities across the country are struggling to deal with an influx of um, of folks coming into the country outside the law. 
As homeless shelters have filled up, city leaders have run out of places to put migrants. In Chicago O'Hare International Airport, that's one of many, one of several, they've begun doubling as a shelter. One of the airport's terminals has been turned into a makeshift home for hundreds who arrived by plane rather than by bus. In other words, they were there not due to Texas Governor Greg Abbott's busing program, but because the Biden administration has flown them there, as it has done all across the country for quite some time now. An Iranian official admitted to the 1983 Beirut bombing. If you can think way back to 83, back in that year, a bombing at the U.S. Embassy in Beirut killed 17 Americans and another one at a military barracks in Lebanon housing American and French personnel resulted in hundreds of deaths, including 220 U.S. Marines, 18 U.S. Navy sailors and three U.S. soldiers, as well as 58 French troops. Well, the U.S. blamed the terrorist organization Hezbollah in Iran for the attacks. Iran, uh, Iran rather, long denied it. But in a recent interview, Saeed Issa, something Iranian, representing the supreme leader in Lebanon, uh, admitted uh, to Iran's role in those bombings. I quickly went to Lebanon and provided what uh, was needed in order to carry out martyrdom operations in the places where the Americans and Israelis were, he stated. With the victory of the Islamic Revolution in Iran, Hezbollah was uh, was established in the summer of 1982. For two years, this is him speaking, Hezbollah's military base was located in my home. The group's supporters of the Islamic Revolution signed a contract declaring their willingness to become martyrs. Perhaps more than 70 of them signed this contract in my home, he went on to say. There is a reason Iran is widely and accurately designated as the world's leading sponsor of terrorism. And it is this historical backdrop that both the Obama and Biden administrations have ignored in order to uh, make a nuclear deal that primarily benefits Iran's terrorist regime. Well, good news. The young girl who has been kidnapped has been found safe. The nine-year-old girl, Charlotte Senna, who was abducted on Saturday at a state park in New York, was recovered alive on Monday night. The suspect, Craig Nelson Ross Jr., allegedly snatched Charlotte as she was riding her bike alone. Uh, leaving behind a fingerprint that led authorities to discover his identity and location to make the subsequent arrest. Charlotte was recovered by a SWAT team that descended on Ross's living quarters, an RV trailer where she was found safe in a cupboard. State police credited the fast recovery to uh, of Charlotte to a culmination of multiple agencies working together for the common good and bringing this child home to her loving family. It's a rare, happy ending to such a case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Hunter Biden pled not guilty on federal gun charges. Uh, Hunter is expected to uh, rely on the Second Amendment ruling that his dad said should uh, would deeply trouble all of us. So he's uh, benefiting from that very thing. The $8 billion Sam Bankman-Fried criminal trial started today, and the Supreme Court will weigh arguments Tuesday in a case that challenges the funding design of the Customer Financial Protection Bureau and could effectively shut down the agency created during the Obama administration. It was formed amid a 2008 financial crisis, and the CFPB's purpose is to protect consumers from predatory behavior from banks and other institutions while enforcing consumer financial laws. 
Well, according to Warren and other Democrats aligned with the Biden administration's defense of the CFPB, again, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a ruling against the agency's funding mechanism could jeopardize its future activity and may also raise questions about the regulations it created in the 13 years since its for- formation. Well, the lawsuit, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau versus Community Financial Services Association of America, was brought by key players in the uh, payback lending industry who say the CFPB is unconstitutionally funded by the Federal Reserve, as most federal agencies receive appropriations from Congress. Well, last year, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, they considered one of the most conservative appellate courts in the nation, ruled that the CFPB's funding structure is unconstitutional. Now, plaintiffs in the case contend that CFPB's funding structure violates the Constitution's Appropriations Clause because it falls outside of the annual congressional appropriations process, a claim that is backed by some pro-small business groups. So we'll continue to follow the story. Um, Again, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. The question is the funding mechanism, not so much the um, bureau and uh, its functioning. Well, the Supreme Court threat hovers over the uh, new Biden FCC net neutrality push, something to watch. And voters see the Democrat Party is more ideologically extreme than the GOP by nine points, according to a new poll. And Pope Francis expressed his openness to same-sex blessings in response to cardinal critics. Hmm. Well, on this day in history, 1789, President George Washington declares November 26th, 1789, a day of thanksgiving to express gratitude for the creation of the United States of America. And if you fast forward to 1863, President Abraham Lincoln, he proclaims the last Thursday in November to be Thanksgiving Day. And it remains on that day to this day. 1941. Adolf Hitler declares in a speech in Berlin that Russia is broken and would never rise again. 1941, the Maltese Falcon, the version starring Humphrey Bogart and directed by John Huston, premieres in New York City. 1955, Captain Kangaroo and the Mickey Mouse Club premiere on CBS and ABC, respectively. I loved Captain Green Jeans and that whole thing. 1991, Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton, he enters the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. 1995, a Los Angeles jury finds O.J. Simpson not guilty of the 1994 slayings of his former wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ronald Goldman. However, Simpson would be found liable for damages at a separate civil trial. 2001, the Senate approves an agreement normalizing trade between the United States and Vietnam. 2003, a tiger attacks magician Roy Horn of Sigfield and Roy during a performance in Las Vegas, leaving him in critical condition. 2008, O.J. Simpson is found guilty of robbing two sports memorabilia dealers at gunpoint in a Las Vegas hotel room. Simpson would later be sentenced to 9 to 33 years in prison and ultimately granted parole in July of 2017 and released in October of that same year. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, researchers at Columbia University, they present evidence that astronomers, rather, for the first time, may have found a moon outside our solar system orbiting a planet as big as Jupiter, about 8,000 light years away. By the way, my father designed that whole... uh, That whole thing. Well, most Americans understandably favor the Ukrainian resistance against Russian President Vladimir Putin's naked 2022 aggression. Yet for Ukraine to break the current deadlock, our generation's Verdun, with perhaps 600,000 combined casualties so far and win the war, 
It apparently must have the military with um, wherewithal to hit targets inside Russia. I'm quoting from Victor Davis Hansen in his latest piece on the Ukrainian Gordian Knot. He writes, such strategically logical attacks might nevertheless provoke a wounded and unpredictable Russia finally to carry out its boilerplate and ignore existential threats. From the past 75 years of big power rivalries, the operational rules of proxy wars are well known. In Vietnam, Korea and Afghanistan, Russia supplied America's enemies, sometimes even sending Russian pilots into combat zones. Thousands of Americans likely died due to our adversaries' uh, use of Russian munitions and personnel. Likewise, Russia lost 15,000 fatalities in its decades-long misadventure in Afghanistan. In part, Moscow's defeat may have been due to deadly American weapons, including sophisticated Stinger anti-aircraft missiles. In the bloody decades of these big-powered proxy wars, many were fought on or near the borders of Russia and China. Yet none of these surrogate conflicts of the nuclear age ever led to hot wars between the U.S., Russia, or China. The question is whether or not that's changing. None of these surrogate conflicts led to hot war. But Ukraine risks now becoming a new and different proxy war altogether. Never has the U.S. squared off against Russia or China in a conventional proxy war over either's respective historical borders, whether illegitimate or not. Neither has Russia nor the U.S. itself ever provided weapons to a proxy belligerent that were used directly inside the respective homeland of either side. They understood superpowers react unpredictably to any third party who fuels direct conventional attacks on their homelands. Nobly protecting both Ukraine and Taiwan understandably holds a potential risk of big power escalation that even Vietnam, Korea, Afghanistan and Iraq likely did not. The U.S. likely or rather rightly is very sensitive to intrusions of any rival big power near its own border. When the Soviets had supplied missiles aimed at the U.S. to its proxy communist Cuba, the Kennedy administration was willing to risk war against Moscow. Indeed, America went to DEFCON 2, the second highest level of nuclear readiness. If all the current 1916-style talk of going into Mexico ostensibly to stop the cartels from importing drugs over an inert border, killing 100,000 Americans a year, were to be um, um, reified, would the U.S. Uh, warn Moscow not to supply Mexico or cartels with weapons or advisors. The U.S. in 1917 declared war in part because German interference in our own territorial wars. A hacked telegram from German State Secretary for Foreign Affairs, Arthur Zimmerman, it revealed Germany had promised a potential proxy Mexico some U.S. territory if it were to join the Central Powers to defeat the Allies. That provocation helped convince enraged Americans to enter World War II. Well, Not a lot of time, but America should keep Ukraine, uh, help Ukraine resist Russian aggression. But we should be mindful in doing so that the entire region is an historical Gordian knot of poorly understood but ancient, intertwined and competing threads. One that may risk being cut by a Russian nuclear sword. It's an interesting thought. You can read the entire article in the Daily Signal, the Ukrainian Gordian Knot. Well, we are out of time. We're looking forward to a conversation tomorrow with a professor from Multnomah University on his latest book. Yeah, we're talking about the professor. Anyway, that uh, we'll tell you more about that tomorrow. Have a great night. Do want to thank James Blind for producing. Dave King, yay, he's back for engineering. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show 
part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.